Hello and welcome to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic, ready with another program of what I hope is delightful and entertaining music for your enjoyment. Now, the time that this episode goes up to the podcast Clouds in the Sky, it is Thanksgiving in Canada. Thanksgiving happens in October and on the second Monday of October. That coincides with the fact that students, especially in the university, are preparing for their midterms, if not uh, already in the middle of them, and also preparing for, in some universities, reading week. So I thought it would be fun to present a program of music that, uh, if not about students per se, at least is something that can help keep them awake while they're busy cramming for their exams or preparing their term papers. The first work uh, I could um, present in a fashion that would be as an example of a poor term paper, and I will explain as I go along. The first work I'm presenting is a comic cantata called Il Maestro ed i sui due scolari, or The Maestro and His Two Students. The recording I have seems to be the only one in existence, and it was for the Hungariton label. The composer attributed to this work is Giovanni Paisiello, who was a very important opera composer in the time just before Rossini. Very much respected, very successful. Beethoven was very fond of his music. In fact, he set one of Paisiello's arias as a piano variation. Mozart liked him as well. Paisiello's version of the Barber of Seville was the most successful before Rossini's. In fact, when Rossini's was staged, fans of Paisiello were incensed and stormed the stage at its premiere. But this work is not by Paisiello. In fact, it's rather strange that it would have been considered by this Italian composer, especially even though the title of the cantata is in Italian, the work is in German, and not just any kind of German, in a Viennese dialect that is so peculiar to the city, it's hard for even other Germans to necessarily master it, as dialects often go. So, why is this work attributed to Paisiello? Well, let's put it this way. If I were to find a manuscript in a museum or a library somewhere that nobody's really ever seen before, and I saw the name of the composer written on the manuscript, and I presented that, say, to my university music history teachers as, hey, look, I found something by Paisiello. They'll look at it, look at my efforts to bring it forward, and probably give me a C, because I have done absolutely nothing to prove that the work is by Paisiello. This is the sort of scholarship that existed, oh, 50, 40, 30 years ago even, amongst musicians, and I don't want to uh, slam musicians, you know, and uh, their, their whole point is to play great music. And what I think happened in this case is that a manuscript was found in the National Seicheny Library in Budapest, in the archives, amongst thousands of manuscripts, unpublished material, ephemera, incunabulae, what have you. Musicians were at least always looking for something interesting to play, and so somebody came across 
a manuscript and saw Paisiello's name on it. And it said, oh, look, here's something by Paisiello. Let's program it. But that's not enough. Um, just because it has the composer's name written on a manuscript does not necessarily mean it was by that composer and it's a lost work recently rediscovered. More research has to go into it. So if I had presented this as a, as a term paper, shall we say, my professors would ask, what did you do to establish that it's by Paisiello? Would I have gone, um, no, actually, I think I would have been a bit better prepared than that because I was taught properly. I would start examining the, the source material. And here's the problem. The source material is not the original material. It turns out it's not the original manuscript, but it is a copy of a manuscript, maybe. If the work was by Paisiello, you could say it was a copy. How do we know it's a copy? Because it's not in Paisiello's handwriting, first and foremost. So that's one clue. The other clue is Paisiello was such a successful musician that a lot of his correspondences even is well documented. So we know practically everything we need to know about his compositions. Some 80 operas, most of which were very successful, none of which and none of his other cantatas on top of that were in German. Yes, he spent a brief amount of time working in Vienna, but that's no indication that he composed this work. He did present a new opera in Vienna, but being a drama, it was expected to be presented in Italian. German was still not considered a, uh, how should I put it? I don't want to be indelicate. It wasn't considered a refined language yet for presenting dramas. Comedies, that was a different story, such as Zingspiels, and we know that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was very good at that genre. And this little cantata is definitely comedic. Again, that opera presented, as I said, by Paisiello was in Italian. Why would Paisiello, for example, even know the German vernacular of Vienna or any of the Austrian vernacular dialects? So that's another thing. Closer examination of the music would also tell you that while the overture may very much be in the style of Paisiello, lots of symphonias and overtures were very similar in their nature. But the rest of the music, if one was studying the score properly, would demonstrate that the music is idiomatically Germanic and of a folk popular nature. The sort of thing that actually Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's father, Leopold Mozart, composed. He was very successful at this sort of thing and composed similar works to this cantata of the teacher and his two students. Now, we don't know if Mozart, Leopold Mozart, actually composed this work. There were dozens of other Kleinmeisters active in Vienna at the time, but this is very much the style that uh, is presented in this work. It's not a style of Paisiello. So why was Paisiello's name associated with this work? Two possibilities. One of which is somebody just simply affixed his name to the score, themselves thinking that it was by Paisiello, and that's happened a lot. That's why a lot of works that we've had presented uh, quite often because of a need to record interesting material, not just perform it, that's quite often how some works got affixed with titles or should I say composers that we later learned was not factual. So somebody may have thought that it was 
by Paisiello, or the other possibility, and I think the more accurate, to be honest, I'd have to do a research paper to find that out, is that it may have been a work that somebody wanted to draw to Paisiello's attention while he was in Vienna, so marked the score Paisiello. That makes sense, because nobody was thinking of posterity, uh, no, nobody saying hello posterity, the way Flanders and Swan said that, or did in their famous recordings uh, for their musical uh, Faragos uh, at the drop of a hat. Hello, posterity. Well, people in those days weren't thinking of that. So that's possibly why Paisiello's name was associated with this work. There is, as well, no indication in his complete works, and they're all well documented, that this work is part of his canon. Not since the recording, and not even at the time of the recording when this this particular recording was made oh back in i think it was in the early 60s at least the reissue of this work on hungariton cd on the cd by hungariton puts a question mark by paisiello's name which is a good thing but the program notes really don't make any reference to the fact that this is only attributed and most likely the attribution is wrong now, what about the work itself? Well, it's delightful. It's a genre of uh, composition that can date back actually even to the Renaissance and early madrigals in which uh, you have amusing settings of uh, a music teacher trying to teach some students the, uh, the art of uh, singing, the art of reading music, everything to do with theory and such. And it's an enjoyable romp through uh, students who are not quite sure what they're doing and pompous music teachers. It is considered, this work is considered an occasional cantata, meaning that it was probably composed for a festive occasion, somebody's birthday or maybe even a wedding, some sort of party, you, you never know. And the whole point is to be amusing. As I said, there are previous examples similar to this. Bach's coffee cantata and peasant cantata could fall into this category, although there are no real students in this, but it's the similar sort of thing. So the premise of this particular um, cantata by Anonymous, as far as we know for now, is that two pupils ask a teacher, a singing teacher, to teach them to sing. We learn from him, as he brags about his abilities, that he can sing wonderfully, not only songs but church tunes as well he can perform trills with great perfection and he also plays a number of instruments more more so he's also famous as a beer drinker oh that sort of thing is always common especially in german texts another example of why it wouldn't have been set by paisiello he even mentions the name of famous viennese composers whom paisiello may not have known of because it was a couple of generations before he also says that if the emperor were to know of his ability, he would appoint him Regens Kori, or the director of the, re of the region's choir. But he would not want to undertake this, the singing director, teacher, because he does not want to be called or considered a Hofnar. You can look that up. It's not very flattering. He also mentions tuition fees, and even though his teaching is really priceless, he occasionally accepts a hen, some cheese, and some wine. The penultimate uh, trio, one of the, the last parts of this work, is an actual lesson of these students and all the faults and pitfalls and uh, the anger and the 
pleasure of the teacher, whether he's successful in in um, imparting his knowledge and abilities to these students or not. And that's the whole point of this sort of work. So there is an attempt to sing solfege and get the notes of the scale correct. It's, it's adorable. Um, and also when things go well, being a master of music, the lesson really is kind of in Italian. So there's a little bit of Italian in this when he says fantastic or enough. But again, not enough to say that this work was by Giovanni Paisiello. Anyhow, let's get to this rather delightful work and hopefully this uh, explanation of why it could have been associated with Paisiello garners me maybe an A or an A plus in my uh, musicology courses. Anyhow, it's a great recording. We are going to hear baritone Josef Dene as the teacher and soprano Margit Laszlo and contralto Zuzsa Barlai as the students. They are accompanied by the Budapest Madrigal Choir, we will hear them towards the end, and the Hungarian State Orchestra under the direction of Ferenc Sekeres. Here is the Cantata Comica Il Maestro ed i sui due scolari, or the master, in other words, the teacher, and his two students. <laughs>
Mir super fein mit meinen Prügeln. Ich mach Musik ganz allein. Alte Tutti, junge Solo, Kreuz, Weiß, Glorin. Ohne Glorin, ohne Glorin, das ist Und Augen traktiere ich meist. 
Quartier. Wenn er sie in Stock einleget, rücken sie vor ihm den Hut. Kriegt er ein der Beutel feget, dem verschließt er gar gut. Wenn ihr einmal könnt's doch geschehen, müsstet auch in Kotter fort. Wird es euch so nett ergehen, euch sitzt er aufs erste Ort. Daher lernet mir vor allem, was ihr in der Musik könnt. Ich will euch mit Dank bezahlen, was ich schuldig bis am Ende. Ich verkauf mein Kunst nicht allen, denn sie würden gar zu gemein. Doch die schöne Stimme zu gefallen, so will ich dein Lehrer sein. Gib nur Achtung auf die Geigen, wie ich singe, singe auch du. Wenn ich schweige, musst du schweigen, schlage drinnen, schlag auch du, schlag ich drinnen, so schlag auch du, schlag ich drinnen, so schlag auch du.
Basta, 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 basta. Jetzt du Sukantor, jetzt du Sukantor. Sie ist heute an der Nacht, wie gut, wie gut, 
That's a wonderfully charming and humorous work. That was the cantata comica Il Maestro Eri Sui Due Scolari, or The Teacher and His Two Students, wrongly attributed to the Italian opera composer Giovanni Paisiello. Who composed it? We don't know, but they deserve credit, whomever they may be. We heard it performed by baritone Josef Dene, who took the role of the teacher, Soprano Margit Laszlo and Contralto Zsuzsa Barlai, who were the students, the Budapest Madrigal Choir, and the Hungarian State Orchestra, all under the direction of Ferenc Sekeres. As I said, this sort of uh, master-student or uh, instructor-learner sort of uh, genre was very popular, lasted well into the 19th century, and one of my favorite examples, I think one of the most perfect examples, occurs in uh, an opera by the German romantic composer Albert Lortzing, 
whose dates are from 1801 to 1851. Yes, rather sadly, he passed away rather early. He was only 50. A very, very talented composer. He himself was a professional singer, so he knew how to compose for the voice. And he was also rather largely self-taught as a composer, which is very interesting because his ear for orchestration is brilliant and his ear for melody is unfailing. His most popular opera, even though Lortzing is not really known very well outside of Germany, and in Germany he is a national treasure, his most popular opera is Tsar und Zimmermann, or Tsar and Carpenter. It is loosely based on the true story of Tsar Peter the Great working incognito in a shipyard in Holland. That actually did happen. So this is certainly a premise for a delightful story. The story is uh, concerning the fact that there are not one but two Russians with the name of Peter working in the shipyard. One is, of course, Peter the Great. He goes by the name of Peter Mikhailov, but there's another Russian who happens to be there, an army deserter, interesting, named Peter Ivanov. Word gets out that, indeed, Peter the Great may be in Holland and may be uh, in disguise, and it's important to find him because there is word of simmering rebellion in Moscow. The uh, English and French ambassadors want to connect with the disguised Tsar, so they send a rather pompous burgomaster by the name of Van Bet to try and suss him out. He arrives at the shipyard and immediately focuses on the wrong Peter. He thinks Ivanov is the Tsar and not Mikhailov. So that's an interesting twist. Added to that is the fact that Van Bed's daughter is secretly in love with the wrong Tsar, shall we say, with, uh, with Ivanov. Of course, Van Bet does not know this. In the beginning of Act 3 is a wonderful scene in which Van Bet prepares a musical homage to the wrong Tsar. He prepares it in honor of Ivanov, not knowing Ivanov is the wrong person. It's a delightful scene in which Van Bet is trying to teach his students how to sing this religious musical tribute. And it is an exquisite bit of composition because there, it's more complicated than normal that we find for works like this. Works brilliantly. And when it's, it's a brilliant bit of comedy. And when it's presented by somebody playing the role of Van Bet as the singer we're about to hear, it just comes off with great aplomb. The singer is the great German bass, one of my favorites, Gottlob Frick. He, this is from a recording of the complete uh, opera that he was involved with. Let's listen to this wonderful scene now. He's accompanied by the choir of, the, of Leipzig Radio and the Staatskapelle Dresden. They are all conducted by Robert Hager. Freunde, heute alles haben wir. 
Über Wiese kann ich schwitzen, kann es natürlich und das Stil ist so ausführlich. 
happy with the fact that uh, this uh, group of people have learned this composition in honor of the false Peter, the wrong Peter considered a czar. The uh, section of this particular excerpt from Albert Lortzing's Tsar und Zimmermann concludes with a rather jaunty Lendler. They are pleased with themselves. We heard the great German bass Gottlob Freak in the role of the rather pompous Burgomaster van Bet, and we also heard the choir of uh, Leipzig Radio and the Staatskapelle Dresden under the direction of Robert Hager. So there are two examples, hopefully you enjoyed them, of uh, master-student uh, relations, if that's the proper word to use these days, um, but students trying to learn from two rather pompous individuals and succeeding, I must say, in their efforts at uh, learning composition. So a fun little uh, look at uh, how students try their best, especially under certain conditions. That could be true today as well. You are listening to David Kavlovic and you are a guest in his music room, my music room. Welcome to my music room again. I'd like to remind you that uh, if you feel like it, you can contact me. I'd certainly like to hear from you. You can send me an email at kapustadave at yahoo.ca. This podcast also has a feature. I didn't know about it until I was a couple of episodes in. But you are able to even leave voicemail, as it were. Just follow the links if you feel like doing that. It would be nice to hear from you folk. You are all rather entertaining in your own ways, I am sure. Now, let's switch directions somewhat. Uh, we're going to now focus on an entire album dedicated to French organ music. This can have a sort of a studential connection because certain sections of this work, if you're a student and you're falling asleep from too much studying, this will wake you up. And what better an instrument to perform French organ music than the organ from Liverpool Cathedral. I think the channel, channel has something to do with that. It happens to be the biggest uh, instrument in, or in the United Kingdom, built by Henry Willison's sons, in the Cathedral of, Liv of Liverpool, which was built throughout, basically, the 20th century. It took a long time to complete this cathedral, from about 19, I think, 1904 right through to the 1980s to uh, build the darn thing, which is actually not uncommon for uh, huge uh, cathedrals, even, even beforehand. But it has such a sumptuous acoustic, fantastic for a big organ like this. And it's one of the biggest instruments in the world, never mind being the biggest uh, organ in the United Kingdom. The organist uh, on this recording was the organist and master of the choristers at the time of the recording, which was around 1994, Ian Tracy. The three organ works that he uh, chose for this recording on Chandos Records really demonstrates this pipe organ to its uh, greatest extent. Two of the three are scored with an orchestral accompaniment. That's not an easy thing to do when it comes to composition, especially if you're playing on an organ in a voluminous acoustic with long decay and uh, and reverberation as Liverpool Cathedral and uh, a lot of composers really avoided that combination. So if you're going to do so, you have to make sure that you've got everything right. 
So what you often have to do, and what is done in, in two of these works, is treat the orchestra as if it were another register or stop on the organ. This way you ensure that you have a proper blend between the solo instrument and the orchestra, because the organ could easily outpower an orchestra, and especially in an acoustic environment such as Liverpool Cathedral. The first work we're going to hear is by the uh, French composer Félix Alexandre Guimont, who comes from a line of organists, as this is often the case. Um, he's actually uh, not French. Well, he is French, but he's Belgian, um, from a prominent Belgian organ family, as I was saying. His dates are 1837 to 1911, so he certainly is part of that organ school in, late Fra in France and Belgium of the late 19th century that just provides sumptuous music for the instrument. So his Symphony Number no. 1 for Organ and Orchestra is divided into three movements, an introduction, a pastorale, and a finale. And I think this aptly demonstrates how an orchestra can definitely be interwoven with an organ. Um, key is simplicity. Do not make things too complicated for the orchestra to play. Allow any serious amount of uh, contrapuntal work to occur in the organ or between organ and orchestra, again, using the orchestra almost as if it were an extra stop or register. Let's listen to it now. We will hear Ian Tracy on the organ perform Guimont's Symphony No. 1. He is accompanied by the BBC Philharmonic under the direction of Jan Pascal Tortelier.
Symphony Number no. 1 for Organ and Orchestra, Opus 42 by the Belgian organist-composer Félix Alexandre Guimont. We heard it performed by Ian Tracy on the organ of Liverpool Cathedral. He was accompanied by the BBC Philharmonic under the direction of Jan Pascal Tortelier. This work also exists as a solo sonata. In fact, that's how Guimont first composed it, but he felt it worthy to uh, rearrange in this version for organ and orchestra. We're now going to hear a solo work for the organ composed by one of the most famous organists ever, Charles-Marie Vidor, famous organist and composer who lived from 1844 to 1937. That means he's lived long enough to actually have made some recordings, and he had, and they're wonderful to listen to. He composed 10 works for organ solo that could be considered symphonies. That's what he titled them, although there is no orchestra involved. The term is to imply that it has orchestral textures. The uh, first four were published under the opus number of 13 in 1872, and the next four, numbers 5 to 8, under the opus number 42, and that was published in 1887. There is also a Symphonie Gothique, given the opus number 70 and published in 1895, and a Symphonie Romaine, given opus number 73 and published in 1900. Symphony number no. 5 is the one that we're going to listen to, so that's from the opus 42 set, and is the most famous of all ten, particularly for its last movement, the Toccata, which is probably one of the best-known organ works other than the Bach Prelude and Fugue. This toccata we often have heard in uh, recessionals, either the end of church services or weddings or what have you. I'm sure you'll recognize it. But it's only one of five movements of the symphony, and these other movements are absolutely fantastic. The whole work deserves as much attention as does the toccata, and indeed in the organ world, it, it gets that attention. I love those eight-numbered symphonies so much, I may program them one day in their entirety, be warned. So it's actually cast in five movements, as I said, rather than four, which is another uh, distinction that separates it from the orchestral world. But the, the textures do kind of suggest uh, orchestral writing, but not always. I think the idea of a symphony, or the term symphony by the late 19th century, has a more uh, broad uh, scope. The first movement is a set of, of variations. Its uh, tempo marking is Allegro Vivace. The next three movements are, are quite... Uh, passive, quite contemplative, and really, really gorgeous. So they are an allegro cantabile, an andantino quasi allegretto, and a most exquisite adagio. So no wonder we have this brilliant toccata with tempo marking allegro. To end this, this glorious work, let's hear it now, performed by Ian Tracy. Here is Charles-Marie Vidor's Symphony for Organ, Opus 42, Number 5. <laughs>
Who Needs Coffee to Keep You Awake for studying after those last two works. The last one we just heard is Charles-Marie Vidor's Symphony for Organ, Opus 42, Number 5. I hope you recognize that famous toccata at the end, but I hope you enjoyed the whole work because it's just a great piece. We heard it performed by Ian Tracy on the organ of Liverpool Cathedral. The last work on this disc, we return to organ and orchestra, actually uh, strings and timpani, and it's a work by the great 20th century French composer Francis Poulenc. I adore everything he writes because it's all masterful, and this particular concerto for organ, strings, and timpani is one of my favorite works, period. It's an interesting work in one movement, but with many uh, tempo indications, because it traverses a whole a slew of musical styles, and that's very typical of Poulenc, who easily mixes uh, Bachian and Mozartian elements, serious opera, even Gregorian chant, with French music hall and uh, fairground music, and this definitely shows up in this work. You've got a little bit of everything, and it just blends marvelously. It's amazing how a, a short work, and it is, it's only 23 minutes as it goes, can go from the profound and sublime to the... Uh, to the lyrical and comic in just a blink of an eye and then back again. It's, it's a phenomenal work. It was commissioned in 1938 by the American-born Princess Edmond de Polignac, who was an heir of the Singer Sewing Machine uh, Empire. She was also an able organist and a great patroness of the arts. She uh, apparently presided over one of the most uh, impressive and dazzling of Parisian salons Boy, that's one thing I would love to have done if I, or could do if I could travel back in time is attend these salons because a lot of interesting conversation, music, and all that happened in, in that environment. Uh, Poulenc uh, studied a little bit with the organist and composer Maurice Dulouflet, uh, particularly regarding the solo part of the organ, so he made sure he got everything right, and he certainly did. The work is briefly reminiscent in its opening of the Bach G minor Fantasia. By the way, I just realized that I was a little bit vague when I was referring to the uh, Vidor Toccata as being a famous work as Bach's Toccata. I said Prelude and Fugue. Mind you, there are Preludes and Fugues of Bach. They're very famous. Anyhow, I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yes, it, uh, this particular concerto has a little bit of Bach influence at the beginning. Uh, goes into Gregorian chant quite uh, quite uh, easily, goes, like I said, into the Parisian music hall. Yet it also has uh, an eerie atmosphere, especially at the beginning with the percussive effect almost sounding as if it's coming from the Parisian catacombs. And yet there's cheerfulness as well, as you can hear. Great work, can't say enough about it, but I won't, because you need to hear it on your own and form your own impression. Here then is Ian Tracy on the organ of Liverpool Cathedral with the BBC Philharmonic conducted by Jan Pascal Tortelier to perform Francis Poulenc's Concerto for Organ, Strings and Timpani. <laughs>
Francis Poulenc's Concerto for Organ, Strings, and Timpani, performed on this wonderful disc of French music for organ and orchestra, for the most part. The Vidor, of course, doesn't have an orchestra. Performed by Ian Tracy on the organ of Liverpool Cathedral with the BBC Philharmonic under the direction of Jan Pascal Tortelier. I hope sometimes when I present these recordings, especially full discs like this one, that you consider, if you like it, to purchase these recordings. Uh, 
I recommend it rather than just listening to the downloads of these podcasts. My narration is one reason why you'd probably want to buy the recordings because <laughs> my narrations won't be on the discs, but I'm also presenting them to you in what's considered a fair use concept in which I'm presenting these recordings um, with a lecture. So, uh, you know, I'm not making any money at all, either off the podcast or presenting these recordings. That's actually up to the uh, internet provider, the, uh, the uh, podcast carrier, who have licensing agreements as it is with the recording companies. To me, it's very important that musicians are supported in any way, shape or form and buying their recordings, either by download or on the original CDs in, in these cases, um, is very important to support them, even in the, in the sense of these CDs, which uh, in many cases are out of print, other than the potential downloading. If you want to buy them, even buying them secondhand, you're helping an industry. First of all, you're recycling, let's face it. And secondly, you're keeping the merchants of secondhand material, whether it's CDs or books or movies, you're keeping them employed as well. And it's, it's, it's a good thing to do. So if you like this disc, do look for it, either as a download uh, from Chandos or find the CD copy. Strongly recommend it. So students, you're still awake? Did that keep you awake? Good, keep using it, keep studying. The rest of us are going to call it a day. We've been listening to some great music again, and I hope you enjoy it. And I certainly hope to see you next time in Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. Thank you for listening. <laughs>